Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James, coming out of Saar Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. We are working through Genesis one chapter a week, and today we get to Genesis chapter 11. It's probably a story that you've heard before if you grew up in church. Maybe you've colored in some pictures of it in kids' church when you were little. Today we talk about the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon, as some might know it. So if you've not read Genesis 11 in the recent past, do go ahead and press pause and read it. We'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in the Word. So Genesis 11:1 begins, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And that makes perfect sense given the fact that we've talked about in Genesis 9 and 10, the fact that everybody had a shared ancestry. And so they're all talking together and they're all speaking the same language. And then we continue in Genesis 11:2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And we know that to be what comes to be known as Babylon. And they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So straight away then here, we see that, that people are, are not obeying the command of Genesis 9:1 where we read God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they're all living together, they're moving together, they're settling together. And now they're saying in chapter 11, verse 3, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They've got the materials to make stuff that's, that's strong. They've got bricks for stones. And it's going to be waterproof. It's bitumen for water. It's like the black tarry stuff that's put on roads sometimes. And these people say then, in, in verse 4, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And that, again, goes against the teaching or the, the command. We would call the teaching at the time, I guess. It's the command of, of Genesis 9-1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not be fruitful, multiply, and all hang out together. There's this wonderful new creation that they've been given dominion and stewardship over. Yet these guys are insisting on living together and building a huge city and a tower and we read, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, which is actually what God wanted for them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill, and to steward his creation. So these people then have a desire to build a city, to build a tower with its top in their heavens. And if you read around the, um, the practices of astrology and some of the occult things that happen around that kind of stuff, a lot of it can be traced back to Babylon around this time. So we see that nothing good comes from disobeying what God says and, and, and stepping out and doing your own thing when it contradicts his word. He's told them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And instead, these guys want to live in a, a, a big city all together with a massive tower that reaches up to the heavens so that they are known, they become well known. And from that... We got all these weird and, and wonderful practices of looking at the stars and, and I think there's a difference between astronomy and astrology and astrology, you know, is looking at star signs and, and this, that and the other. And again, a lot of that occult stuff can be traced back to Babylon. So we just see that nothing comes good 
when we disobey God and, and step out and do our own thing. And as we continue in Genesis 11, we see that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And again, this is where that suggestion that uh, chronologically Genesis 10 should come after here, that's where this would come in. And very, very interesting point about, about the language, uh, the phrase, the Lord confused their language. I read that the division of languages is, is so fascinating because linguists know, apparently, that, that, that mankind didn't invent language any more than they invented their own you know, circulatory or nervous system. And most linguists, I read, believe that language is so unique that the only way that can explain it is that it comes from God. So the only way they can explain it is that it comes from, from somewhere else. It's not something that man has, has developed, something that was given to mankind. And I read again that language is so complex because language exists as a whole system, not just small parts mixed together. It's a whole system of language and, and sounds. And again, most modern linguists believe that all languages come from one original language. Also really interesting in there is when we read uh, in verse 7, come let us go down in Hebrew. That word is plural. It's not single. It's not dual. It's plural. So it's three minimum. And there's a very subtle but very real reference to the Trinity there, the Father, Son, the Spirit. Let us go down and confuse their language. And that just speaks into the fact that you know, reading a, a reliable translation of, of the Bible in your own language is great. But sometimes subtle yet wonderful things like this are just missing. Because you read it in English, think, let us go down. You think, oh, okay, there's more than one. But when the grammar is such that, and the language is such, that this is communicating that, no, there's at least there's three here. It's not one, it's not two, there are three. Let us go down together. It's a very real and a very subtle reference to the Trinity. And really from this part of Genesis 11, we see that you know, time changes, language develops, but you know people don't. They've had a command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What have they done? They've stuck together, they've built a mass, or they tried to build a massive city with a huge tower so that they can be known, so that they can't be dispersed. So, you know, times change, people don't change. And then from verses 10 through 26, uh, it's Shem's descendants basically. It begins, these are the generations of Shem, and it ends in verse 26 when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. That's the first mention of Abraham in the Bible, that's this man who becomes a great man of faith. And again, we said genealogies are important. They might not be super duper interesting, but if you look forward in your Bibles to, 
to Luke chapter 3, this lines up with the genealogy of Jesus. It's really important for us to see, you know, Abraham, father of Abraham, grandfather of Abraham, all the way back. We can trace it all the way back to Shem, to Noah, to Adam. And we see that this is the family, this is the line of Genesis 3.15, this coming redeemer, this coming rescuer, this, this coming Messiah, the chosen one of God who's going to put things right. It's so important that we see that he can be traced back to Adam, a, a real family. So when God says in Genesis 3, something is coming, somebody is coming to fix this, to put this right. When we get to the New Testament and we're talking about Jesus, we can trace his lineage, his, his human lineage all the way back to Adam. And then verses 27 through to the end of chapter 11 uh, talk about Terah's descendants, which is uh, Abraham's dad. And this is where we're introduced to Lot for the first time in verse 27 and uh, also Abram, because at this point he's Abram, not Abraham. We're introduced to Abram and his wife, Sarai. She's not Sarah at this point. And their names, his name Abram means father. Her name means contentious. And we read sadly in verse 30 that now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And that, you know, there was probably something there for her to contend with. She sees everybody around her having a family. And yet sadly, at this point in time, she can't. Verses 31 and 32 are very interesting. We read that Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. So Abram used to live in Babylon. And we read in Joshua 24 verse 2 that Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we see that Abraham did live around Babel, around Babylon, and he was involved in the, the pagan worship of false gods, you know, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abraham wasn't born this wonderful, stoic man of faith, perfect obedience. He's a, he's a regular person. We saw that Noah was a regular person, didn't we? When he slipped and tripped and, and fell into sin. And we see that Abram, Abraham as well, is just a regular person called out of a pagan, ungodly lifestyle to be a great man of faith. And that's so encouraging for you and for me that we don't need to be this great man of faith, this great lady of faith first. We just need to be obedient to the call of God in our lives. And then he works with us and in us to develop that great person of faith. And as we wrap up chapter 11, we see that Abram, Abraham and his family, they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they're just making do. They're not quite where they set out to go, but they're just making do. And we read the days of Terah, whose name means delay. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And Haran as a place, the name means parched, the name means barren. So they'd set off for, for a better life, but they kind of made do. And they settled. And sadly, that's where Abram's father died. So that passage in Joshua 24 describes Abram before God 
had called him. And we see again that he was from a family of idol worshippers who was probably most likely an idol worshipper himself. As we get next time into Genesis 12, there's this call to Abraham to be faithful and to, uh, to go and to find this land. And we see in Acts chapter 7 that the call to Abraham came whilst still living in Ur. So it's a little bit confusing with the chronology here that in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. But actually, we've already read at the end of chapter 11 that he's on this journey. So he's on the way to the land that God will show him, but then they stop, you know, part way there. So he's partially obedient, this great man of faith, partially obedient when God calls him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he doesn't actually get to where the, the land that God will show him. And he brings his family with him as well. So he's, he's, he's partially obedient. And Charles Spurgeon said about this, he said, Halfway obedience increases our responsibility because it's a plain confession that we know the Lord's will, though we don't do it. Abram received the call and knew that he had done so. You know, otherwise, why would they be in Haran in the first place? He admitted by going as far as Haran that he ought to go the whole way. He'd set off and he'd left his home. But he was partially obedient, and by his own action, he left himself without excuse. And Spurgeon went on to say that the result of this to Abram was the absence of privilege. God spoke not to his servant in Haran. No dream, no vision, no voice came to him. God loved Abraham, Abram, yes, but for this time, he, Spurgeon says, he hid his face from him and denied him the visits of his grace. Next time then, in Genesis chapter 12, we'll talk more about the call of Abram, the call on his life, and we'll see how Abraham, or Abram and Sarah conduct themselves when in Egypt. But until then, God bless.